This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today I'm going to talk about something that I came to in a bit of a roundabout way, several different ideas on a similar theme, and this morning it started to come into focus a bit, so I thought I'd talk about it now. As part of our homeschooling, oh, by the way, Olga and I homeschool Valerie, and part of that homeschool curriculum is reading books together every day. And one of the books that we're reading this year is on the theme of being disappointed with God. And this is not a book that we chose for ourselves. It's part of the curriculum. So we started on it. And to be honest, the idea of being disappointed with God is one that I'm not familiar with because I haven't been disappointed with God. I don't really think it's my place to be disappointed with him. And yet, I know that people do become disappointed or disillusioned in their walk with the Lord. So that began to tie in with some things that I've been thinking about over the past couple of weeks. Before I get into that, I want to remind you, if you have anything you'd like to share with me, any thoughts or questions or ideas for future episodes, please feel free to send me a note at ancientpaths at cantrell.cc. I'd love to hear from you. As a matter of fact, I've recently heard from some listeners on different topics, and those emails may work their way into future episodes. So please do write to me. On this theme of being disappointed with God, one of the things that's in the very first chapter of this book is a statement that people are taught, Christians are often taught in churches, that we are to live a life of triumph and victory. And the author's point is, if we don't experience triumph and victory, then we can become disappointed. Or we can even question his existence. Our faith can be called into question if we don't experience this promised life of triumph and victory. Well, as I read that, I thought, we are actually promised a life of triumph and victory. But how do you define that? Do we define it by man's standards, the world's standards, or do we define it by God's standards? And this, I think, is one of the key issues that come up as people question their faith or question the character of God. What do they believe about God? What do we think God promises us? And this, of course, is a reason we have to read the Bible in order to understand how God reveals himself So if we are promised a life of victory, what standard do we use? Now, I have seen on television or the internet, and I've heard some people talk about it, their health and wealth gospel preachers who would say that we are promised a life of victory and triumph here on earth in the form of cash flow and good jobs and health and nice cars and nice homes, that God has promised those things to his people if we will just claim them in faith. God promises us triumph and victory, for sure, but according to his definition. And that definition is eternal fruit, fruit that will last. It's not things where moth and rust destroy, and I spoke about that recently. His definition of triumph and victory is finishing this race 
and moving in to the world to come. His definition of triumph and victory is a constant increase of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's victory. If you look back at previous episodes, find the one where I talk about the German lemon. That's an example of how we are to live by God's definition of success, not by our definition of success. So as I thought about this issue of being disappointed with God and the reasons that a person might become disappointed with God and how that relates to our expectations about what God promises or what we deserve, I've been thinking about what it is to carry a cross. And I'd like to take a look at Luke chapter 14 as a starting off point. And I'll read a bit from Luke chapter 14 so we can hear the words of Jesus. And then I'll talk a little bit more. Maybe Psalm 31 will find its way into this conversation. Some things from Deuteronomy. It's about the character of God and what our expectations should be and what our place is as we relate to him. Thankfully, oh so thankfully, Jesus was quite clear about how we, as his creatures, are to relate to him, the creator, and how we are to be disciples and believers and walk in the truth. Starting in Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. We'll continue on in a minute after that, but let's get an image in our mind, if we can, of Jesus traveling and people with him, and he turns to them and he faces them, people who were following him. And he said, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his whole family, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We have to hate our family and we have to carry our cross and follow him. Otherwise, we cannot be his disciples. It's impossible to be a disciple of Jesus if you don't carry your cross and follow him, and actually if you don't hate your father and mother. That's pretty sharp words, and if you haven't heard it, I encourage you to go back and listen to my series of talks on two kingdoms, where I discuss that in the kingdom of God, words have very different meanings than in the kingdom of this world. Joy, love, And yes, even the word hate has a different meaning in God's kingdom. So when we hear Jesus say we have to hate our father and mother, we think that means an emotional despising, uh, a desire to destroy. But that's not what hate means to God. Really, to hate something is to refuse to give it a place of prominence or a place of influence, to turn away from that thing and turn toward God. That's what it is to hate something, is to put it aside and refuse to look to it for a source of life or meaning or purpose. And so in that sense, we really do have to turn away from our father and our mother, even our wife and children, even our brothers and sisters. We have to turn away from everything all the way up to our own life. We have to put that aside, put that behind us, and turn our face to the Lord. We have to follow Jesus and keep our eyes and our faces towards him. Otherwise, we can't be a disciple. 
And Jesus says, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. In verse 26 and then in verse 27, Jesus says the words, anyone, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother. And in verse 27, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then in verse 33, he says, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. He's talking about anyone. If anyone wants to be his disciple, there are certain things that must happen in that person's life. We have to turn away from our family. We have to carry a cross. We have to give up everything. In verse 28, Jesus says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build, but was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able, with 10,000 men, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. And then we see here in verse 33, Jesus says, In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything that he has cannot be my disciple. Well, what are some of the things that we have? Jesus mentions family. I'd also say expectations, uh, selfish desires. A part of repentance is surrendering our thoughts, our understanding of the world. We've got to let that go. We have to give up everything to follow Jesus. He's talking about counting the cost of being a disciple. And here, when he talks about building a tower and also going to war, he is giving images of what it means to be a disciple, to count the cost and to consider exactly what the cost will be if we are to be disciples of Jesus. And I've thought about this image of kings going to war. And a king who is going to fight another king, he sits down and he says, well, I've got 10,000 men, but the man coming against me, he's got 20,000. And I can't beat that, so I need to sue for peace. I need to go to him and say, please, let's have peace. And I've thought about that. Who am I, a mere man, to stand up against the creator of the universe? What force could I bring to oppose him? What strength do I have that could stand up against God? None. I have absolutely none. And if I fight against God, his power is so overwhelming, it will completely destroy everything. And yet, if I realize I can't fight him, I need to sue for peace with him, I need to go to God and say, please, I am worthless, I'm weak, you are so strong, I want peace. And that's exactly what Jesus offers. He says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you peace. I'll give you rest. We need to count the cost. We need to realize that our lives are really nothing compared to our eternal God. And I'm so thankful that our God is a loving God. Jesus himself said that he did not come to condemn, he came to save people. 
He came to save. But our role, our part, is to surrender everything. And that's what Jesus teaches. Anyone who comes to him has got to leave their family behind and love him more than his own family, even his own life. And we have to carry our cross and follow him. And we have to give up everything, not just the things we don't like. We have to give up the things we like. Now, when it comes to this theme of leaving everything and following Jesus, I think it's pretty interesting to look at what happened with Levi, the tax collector. Starting in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth. Follow me, he told him, and Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Well, good for Levi. He left everything. He just stood up and followed him. But look at verse 29. (laughs) Then... Levi hosted a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors were there, along with others who were eating with them. Well, isn't that interesting? Levi got up and he left everything, and then later they had a big banquet at the house, at Levi's house. Well, the banquet cost some money, I imagine. Still had the house. So what I see in this is that Levi did indeed leave everything. In his heart, he left everything behind and put it all at the service of Jesus. And so the house and the food came to the service of Jesus. It was still Levi's house. It was, I guess, where he was staying and where he had authority to have a banquet. But it all belonged to Jesus at that point. And that helps me think about what it means for me to leave everything and yet still be allowed to be in charge of some things. Well, now I want to take a look at what Jesus said about carrying a cross. We have to leave everything to follow him, and we also have to take up a cross. And much has been said about what it is to take up a cross, to carry a cross. And I don't presume to have a lot of wisdom about that, but I do have a few thoughts that have been helpful to me, and maybe they'll be helpful to you as well. First of all, a cross is a place of suffering. And to be a follower of Jesus means that we have to be willing to step into places of suffering and hardship. So taking up a cross is going to be a place of suffering, difficulty, hardship. Because we're followers of Jesus, we bear up under hardships. And different teachers have defined what it means to take up a cross and might even say, this is what your cross is. I won't presume that, but I will say that if we want to follow Jesus, we must be willing to choose a place of suffering. We must be willing to bear difficulties, things that are really, really hard. And of course, this is contrary to some of the teaching in the church today that we're promised a life of triumph and victory, because people think, how can you have triumph and victory and suffering and hardships coexisting? And yet, that is exactly what we see on the cross. Jesus suffered terribly, and that was the place of victory and triumph. And that's true for us as well. It hurts, oh, it hurts so much to die to ourselves and to suffer and to bear under hard things. But that is the place 
of victory and triumph. We've got to be willing to do that if we want to be disciples of Jesus. And honestly, if we embrace that, if we understand that, we won't be disappointed in God. As a matter of fact, the very things that would perhaps lead someone to question their faith would be the very thing, then, that would lead our faith to be deeper and greater. Remember the early disciples, they were rejoicing that they were being treated badly because they were followers of Jesus. That is so contrary to particularly Western culture, which focuses so much on comfort and ease and avoiding work and avoiding difficulty, whereas the life of a Christian is one of saying, you know, this is hard and I'm going to walk right into it. It is hard. I have a couple of other things that come to mind as I think about what it is to take up a cross. And I think about what did Jesus do on his cross? Perhaps by looking at him as he bore his cross, that'll help me understand how I can bear my cross every day, whatever those sufferings are, whatever the hardships are that he allows into my life. How can I bear that cross well? And one thing that I see is that Jesus was mocked when he was on his cross. People made fun of him. They saw it as a sign of weakness and failure. But he knew that he had to go through that because that was the will of the Father. And that'll be true for us as well. We get into a hard spot, something difficult happens, perhaps something that's completely out of our control, a birth defect, a collapsed economy, a failed business. Remember, Jesus was mocked when he was on his cross. Jesus was not on the cross because of his sin. He was on the cross because of the sin of others, of you and me. And he was mocked because he chose that form of suffering and that form of service. And you and I may be mocked as well. If we suffer because of our own sin, that's not really a cross, honestly. To take up the cross of Jesus is to suffer for him and for his sake and to suffer for others to gladly take on hardships for the sake of others. I've been mocked. Actually, a close family member is a mocker, makes fun of my faith. But that's not going to deter me. I don't live for this family member's approval. I live for the approval of Jesus. What also helps me is to think about what did Jesus do on his cross? And maybe that'll help inform me about how I can act when I'm in a place of suffering. And a couple of things that he said are very helpful to me. The first thing that comes to mind is when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. When I'm in a place of suffering, going through something hard, and the people around me are either causing that suffering or mocking me, I can have the same attitude of Jesus, which is to say, Father, forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. Now, Jesus said this when he was on the cross and he was addressing the Father, interceding for the people that were actually murdering him, the people that had nailed him to that piece of wood. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. And he understood, Jesus understood that these men did not know what they were doing. They did not understand the spiritual forces that were driving them. And very often when people manipulate us or mock us or treat us badly, they really just don't know what they're doing. And we can have that attitude. Say, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Just have have grace for them. God, please bring your forgiveness to them. Please help them to repent because they don't understand the terrible things that they're doing. They just don't understand. 
Well, that's helpful to me. To be on a cross in a place of suffering and to have an attitude of forgiveness for the ones that are causing me that suffering. So, amen. Let's have that attitude when we're on our cross. Another thing that Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that helps me very much because every day you and I can say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Every day as we take up a cross, as we're in a place of suffering and hardship, a place of death to self, we can say, we should say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I encourage you, don't take up your life. Don't try to save yourself. Don't try to make sense of everything in your life. If you're bewildered, well, now that I say that, let's look at Psalm 31. I was reading this the other day. It's written by David. And this is the psalm that Jesus quoted when he was on the cross. Into your hands I commit my spirit. That's from Psalm 31, verse 5. And when I realized that as I was reading Psalm 31, I thought, well, Jesus could very well have had the entire psalm running through his mind as he was on the cross. Certainly he had it memorized. He's the author of it, ultimately. Jesus knew Psalm 31 very, very well, and he quotes it there on the cross. And I'd like to read some of Psalm 31. And keep in mind, this is perhaps, and I guess I would say most likely, what was going through the mind of Jesus when he was on the cross for some portion of his time there. So starting in verse 1, and I'll read different parts here. It's a little bit long, but I'll read some of it. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me and come quickly to rescue me. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. And since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Free me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years with groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors. I am a dread to my friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I am forgotten by them as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. For I hear the slander of many, and there is terror on every side. They conspire against me. They plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies, from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I have cried out to you. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of men on those who take refuge in you. In the shelter of your presence you hide them from the intrigues of men. In your dwelling place you keep them safe from accusing tongues. Praise be to the Lord, for he has showed his wonderful love to me when I was in a besieged city. 
In my alarm, I said, I am cut off from your sight. Yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud he'll pay back in full. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Well, of course, David wrote this as he was coming through a very difficult place, difficult time. He was often attacked, even by his own family members. And he saw God as his rock and fortress. And Jesus quotes this scripture, and there's so much there that applies to the situation in which Jesus found himself when he was on the cross. Into your hands I commit my spirit. The scriptures say that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And the Bible says that we should have the same attitude. Let's remember, there is joy set before us. On the other side of the cross is great joy. And in order to pass through into that joy, we need to be willing to bear that cross and go through the hardship. And we can endure it because he promises to help us endure it. Well, let's remember, when we're in a place of suffering, that we can say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And we can say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. After Jesus talks about counting the cost and what we have to surrender, we read in Luke chapter 15 the parables that Jesus gives about finding what is lost. And if you'll remember, there's a parable of a lost sheep. It's one out of 99. And then next is the parable of the lost coin, and that's one out of 10. And there's great rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. There's so much rejoicing, much more than finding a lost sheep out of 100 or one lost coin out of 10. And then the next parable is the parable of the lost son, which is one out of two. And I think it's significant that Jesus talks about the cost of being a disciple and what we must surrender in order to be a disciple. And then we immediately read about the attitude of the Father, of hunting and seeking and finding what is lost, and then rejoicing at finding it. So it's not just us having to do certain things in order to come to him. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. And that is the character of our Father. He is coming to seek and save those who are lost. As a matter of fact, if he didn't come to seek and save the lost, we wouldn't have these words of Jesus as they come to us. It was his very act of leaving the heavenly realms and coming to earth as a man, that active seeking to save the lost that allows him to speak these words in a way that we understand them. And he says, this is the way to be found. If you want to be my disciple, you've got to leave things. But I have come to save. In my readings through the Old Testament recently, something stood out to me that I'd read quite a few times, but it began to make a little bit more sense to me. Quite a few times in the Old Testament, well, many times, there's this phrase, and it's often referring to the way the Lord led Israel out of Egypt. We find this in Deuteronomy, in 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, even in the Psalms, in Jeremiah, Ezekiel. This phrase, very often like this, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And it happens so many times, actually in Deuteronomy in particular, that I sort of skip over it when I come to it because it's repeated so many times that the Lord brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt 
with two things, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And I never really thought about what that confers. What does that really mean? Well, the first thing is it's a mighty hand. God has power. He is strong. God has the strength to save millions from Egypt. He has the strength to save us from this world. He has a mighty hand. He has the ability to do the things that he wills to do. That's great. The Lord brought Israel out of Egypt with his strength, with his mighty hand, and he is bringing us out of this world with that same mighty hand. But it also says, with an outstretched arm, that God does this with an outstretched arm. And now I think I understand what that means. He's reaching out. He's not standing and saying, you come to me. He reaches out and he does this work. He has this mighty hand and he stretches out his arm to reach to us and grab us. The image that comes to mind is of a person who has fallen in the water and is drowning. The hand reaches out. Our part is to grab the hand. If we refuse the help that's offered, well then, of course, we'll continue to drown. But if we take that hand, it is a mighty hand with an outstretched arm. And to me, that's a beautiful, beautiful image that God has this mighty hand and he doesn't hold it close to himself. He reaches out. He stretches his arm out to those who are perishing. And he offers that mighty hand to bring people up and out of slavery. God is strong and he reaches towards us. God is strong and he reaches toward you. Now loop all the way back to what started this conversation this idea of being disappointed with God. Disappointment comes from unmet expectations. And if our expectations are not correct, then they're not going to be met. But Jesus is so very clear. The scriptures are so very clear of what we should expect. What do we expect? What is the real situation? If we think that God promises to give us a happy life and an easy life, then we're going to be disappointed because he doesn't ever promise that. Not on this earth. On this earth, Jesus said, we're going to have troubles. And he also said, don't worry, be of good cheer, have a strong heart because he's overcome this world. And for the joy that is set before us, we endure the hardships here. And this is why it is the kindness of Jesus to make the claim on people that he makes. He says, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to walk the path of salvation, if you want to participate in abundant life, if you want streams of living water to flow up and out of you, then you must leave everything and follow me. That is the only way. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, says Jesus, then you're going to find it. You really will find it. And brothers and sisters, honestly, there is no disappointment there. There's absolutely no room for being disappointed. (laughs) It just came to mind. One of the things, I can't remember if I read it or heard it or somebody said it to me. It's impossible to offend a corpse. And that has always helped me to understand that I need to die more and more. And the more I die, the less offendable I'll become. 
and now I'll apply it here, it's impossible to disappoint a corpse. A dead body is not ever disappointed. And we, we need to die to ourselves, not just to die, but so that we can enter into that life that God has for us, take his life as our own. Amen? That's what it is to be a disciple, to really, really surrender not only what we have, but who we are, so that his life can be ours, so that we can participate in that divine nature, so that we can share in his holiness, so that we can bear fruit that's eternal. And the pathway, the gateway to joy, as Elizabeth Elliot says, the gateway to joy is through that suffering and that death to self. Well, amen. And I'll close for now with just a final reminder that the Lord has a mighty hand and he has an outstretched arm. God is strong and he reaches towards us. And not only does he reach towards us to hold us by the hand, he actually puts his spirit within his people. Well, brothers and sisters, until next time, I really pray, amen, that God will reveal to you more and more about his mighty hand and his outstretched arm and what your place is as you live with him, what place you have in the body of Christ, and that he will reveal his ways to you, because his ways are always good, and they do lead to peace for the soul. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all.